changing the relations of power also means changing the subjects who reenact them and um, who are constituted through them. Welcome to the Social Science for Public Good podcast, a project of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance and VT Publishing. In this series, we attempt to make social science theory available and accessible for social change practitioners, such as activists, nonprofit leaders, and government officials. My name is Brad Stevens. And I'm Yagasha Bakshi. We're both PhD students in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization program in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech interested in the question of how to build a better world. Welcome back to another episode of the Social Science for Public Good podcast, and we are continuing our conversation on power here. Up to now, we've talked, uh, we've walked through a discussion of some of the most prominent theories of power, the three dimensions, urban regime, state, non-state, and uh, the you know, scholars today still go back to the three dimensions and urban regime and the de- democratic theory. We've talked about power as a thing, as um, as an action, as well as its different conceptualizations, different forms in terms of its visible and invisible forms. How are you feeling at this point, Brad? Uh, slightly overwhelmed, but excited to keep going here. You know, I think... Um, I- this is the joy of academia, right? Is nothing is ever as simple as it seems, and so power. But I think that's the that's what excites me is that hopefully we're making this nuanced and useful in a way that um, uh, is helpful to those trying to do good work out there. But how are you feeling, Yugasha? Well, I can say the same. I mean, a little overwhelmed, but at the same time, really excited to have spoken to such, you know big names and have had the uh, pleasure of talking to everyone and to get a deeper look into their mindset. You know, what were they thinking when they were coming up with these theories? What are some of the questions that they had in their mind when they were working through the different conceptualizations of power? So overall, really interesting and a great learning experience for sure. So um, before we move ahead with today's episode, I just wanted to quickly start with one tiny little question. Do you think the way power is held or exercised by women and women is the same? I know I may be oversimplifying gender here, um, and uh, I don't know how to put, I mean, just for the sake of the argument, just let's go with the binary form today. I, uh, that's a really interesting question that um, I suppose my, uh, my old school's thoughts would say that there are massive power differentials, but that the power itself across the genders is the same. But that's, you know, I'm beginning to see through our entire conversation here that power is a very multifaceted, complex thing. So I'm less comfortable saying that. That being said, you know, I'm, I, I readily admit uh, that across all genders that there are massive disparities of, uh, of power and that they have traditionally been held and exercised in very different ways. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. How do, you, how do you think about it, Yugasha? Well, I, I think you put it um, across really well, um, Brad, and I, I agree with you. It's definitely not that simple to think about it, uh, especially now that we're talking in only binary terms. And if we add more layers of understanding of gender, the more complicated the question becomes. Um, but definitely something that we need to 
think of um, we I think everyone is very aware of what we mean when we talk about patriarchal systems, when we talk about uh, feminism and how we have so many people who, you know, will get up and say that, oh, feminism is just about women having more power or having, um, I guess, and the understanding of the word and the weight that it carries both when I talk about feminism and patriarchy is deeply misunderstood in many different ways and it is important to piece together what it really means um, for for everyone really um, and that's the that's the question that we will be diving into today on understanding a little deeper on feminist philosophy on feminist accounts of power and if we've not already had enough of the theories of power today, we'll be adding on another layer. We'll be talking about Foucault's understanding of power. And he obviously had a lot to contribute uh, to the way it is understood uh, today. And to help us think about all of this, we have got Dr. Amy Allen, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies in Penn State. Dr. Allen's area of specialization includes social and political theory, feminist theory, and critical social theory. Her research takes a critical approach to feminist approaches to power and attempts to broaden traditional feminist understandings of power. She often uses Foucauldian lens to view power and has widely published on the subject. Are you starting to feel even more overwhelmed at this point, Brad? Are you going to be okay? I, well, I'm excited because Foucault is one of these names that uh, is just, uh, it gets me energized because I think he's got really interesting things to say. But I, I I think we might want to just suggest right up here at the very beginning that uh, uh, Foucault is a French philosopher. I don't know that we'll ever actually get to this on the podcast, <laughs> but as a French uh, political social philosopher who has a lot to say about a lot of things. Um, uh, and so we, we're, I don't know, uh, I'm intrigued to see how deep we get into it, but uh, just to, uh, I'm excited about that part of it. And, and uh, as someone who would consider myself uh, a feminist as well, I'm intrigued to see how Dr. Allen is going to kind of bring the two together here today. So I'm, I'm excited. Well, I am as well. So let's get into it. Welcome, Dr. Allen. Thank you so much for joining this conversation today with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you've written widely about power and how it is. it was understood by Foucault and its relevance and understanding uh, feminist theory as well. Can you start us off by sharing how you became interested in power and why it continues to interest you today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I think I got interested in the topic of power um, partly through having um, read Foucault, I guess by, by having read a combination of Foucault and feminist philosophy when I was an undergraduate. Um, I, I took a seminar on Foucault when I was, I think, a junior, and um, I didn't know anything about him going into that seminar. Um, the seminar was actually labeled something about postmodernism. And I, I think I thought I was interested in postmodernism because I had some interest that at that time in postmodern art and theater. And so it sounded interesting. So I signed up for this class and then 
And then the first thing we did was spend, you know, several weeks, um, slogging through the order of things. And, um, I realized like, oh, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be at all. Um, but I found, uh, Foucault's work just incredibly exciting and interesting. And it really changed, I think, and also shaped a lot of my, um, my thinking and my intellectual interests from that point forward. And at around the same time, um, and somewhat independently, I was also um, becoming interested in feminist philosophy. So, um, you know, this was around 1990 or so, and it was kind of an interesting moment, I guess, in feminist theory and politics. Um, you know, the 80s had been a time of real backlash against the feminist movement. And that was really when I was coming of age, um, you know, as a teenager. And, and so I really didn't, um, feminism wasn't the kind of thing that, you know, I would say many young women of my age really wanted to associate with at that moment in history. Um, and still there was a, um, there was a professor where I went to school who taught, who was very informed by radical feminism and the work of Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin and was very involved in the anti-pornography, feminist anti-pornography movement. And she taught a feminist philosophy class and, um, that I signed up for. And that was also really eye-opening um, and life-changing, I would say. I mean, I don't think um, I ended up fully agreeing with all of the uh, kind of radical feminist views that, that were being <clears throat> discussed in that class. But I really um, became very interested in thinking about, um, in thinking about feminist politics um, and feminist political theory. And, um, and also at that point started identifying myself as a feminist. So um, even though I wasn't fully on board with the with the McKinnon Dworkin program, um, I came through that experience to start identifying as, as a feminist. And so it was really kind of the, those two experiences that somehow once I got to graduate school kind of came together, um, as a way of trying to think about, um, power and, and the concept of power as it operates in feminist theory. Very interesting. Well, you're, well-versed in this, and you know that there are as many different definitions and, and theories of power as there are people thinking about this. And you know, there are different ways that that, that feminist conception of power has been differentiated from the Foucauldian kind of idea. Can you share a little bit about how you understand and define power uh, in your own work? So in my, my dissertation, which became my first book, is a kind of attempt to... Um, offer a feminist conceptualization of power, which, you know, so I wrote that, um, I started writing that project when I was in my mid twenties. And I now think like that was such a ridiculously, you know, hubristic thing to try to do with that at that point in my career. Like, um, you know, I don't, I really don't think that I knew enough at the time, um, to really be taking on a topic like, like that. Um, I guess on the other hand, maybe I wouldn't have had the chutzpah to do it uh, if I knew more about what I was getting into. <laughs> so, um, but one of the starting kind of thoughts of that project is um, that how we understand power really depends a lot on, you know, 
what it is we're trying to do with the concept. And so I don't think, uh, first of all, that it makes sense to try to articulate a theory of power that's valid quite generally for like any and all domains. Um, so, you know, so how you think about power is going to be really different if your main interest is in democratic theory, let's say, or in feminist theory or in, you know, thinking about white supremacy or, you know, various topics that you might be interested in international relations. I mean, there could be some overlap, obviously. And I think there might be some, some common, common themes across these different, um, these different literatures, but my aim in my first book was to try to think about what's a way of conceptualizing power that, um, that works or makes sense for feminist theory specifically. Now, even that's already like a ridiculously large topic because if you think about it, and one of the complicated things about, um, talking about power in relation to feminist theory is that it's kind of everywhere and also, nowhere. Um, in, in other words, it's such a central concept that almost every, uh, work book article, et cetera, that deals with feminist theory in some way is engaging the concept of power, but it's also, um, pretty unusual for it to be explicitly thematized and discussed. So, um, that makes it really hard to even figure out how to delimit like the conversation, you know, um, so, um, that's all just a way of kind of, uh, background to say, um, I think this is a very, you know, complex and contested terrain. Part of my aim in my conceptualization of power was to try to systematize in a way and do justice to different, um, usages of power in the concept in the, in, um, debates within feminist theory. So, um, so at the time that I was initially formulating the project, there was a lot of, it seemed to me like people talking past each other, you know, sort of saying, um, oh, feminism's all about, um, you know, if you, if you focus too much on, uh, domination and relations of oppression, then you end up denying women's agency. And so you end up, you know, trying to focus on one understanding of power and therefore implicitly crowding out or obscuring the function of empowerment. And so you had some people who would say, well, we should define power not as domination, but rather as empowerment. And that's a way of overcoming this tendency and so on. And it always struck me that that was a little bit um, too simple and that, and that really the challenge was to try to think about how different modalities of power actually relate to one another. So my understanding of power that I defended in my first book was like a broad conceptualization of power. Um, that then is divided up into different modalities, what I call power over, power to, and power with. And then the challenge is to sort of think about, you know, both the kind of more specific forms that these different modalities of power might take, and then also how they relate to one another. But in order to kind of understand power in all these different modalities, I think I thought, well, we need a really broad concept, conception of power. Otherwise, you know, it, it, it's not going to make sense that these different forms of power would all be forms of the same thing. So I define power really broadly as the capacity or ability to act. That It turns out there's a, there's a kind of long history, tradition um, in political philosophy defining power in that way. Um, 
And, um, so I think my work kind of connects up with some of that tradition, but I didn't really arrive at it through a reading of the history of political philosophy. I arrived at it more kind of like backwards by thinking about like, well, when some feminists talk about domination and other feminists talk about empowerment and other feminists talk about solidarity, like somehow we're all talking about these interrelated things and they're all power, but in different forms. And so how do we have to understand the concept of power to make sense of these different uses of it? Well, Foucault is considered one of the most relevant uh, power theorists, and rightly so. Uh, the way he dealt with the concept of power has influenced practitioners today. Can you help us understand his conceptualization of power and uh, how it manages to still stay relevant today? Mm -hmm. Well, it's um, extraordinarily complex, but I think there are a few, um, let's say, um, methodological highlights or um, uh, insights that Foucault had that were particularly um, productive. Um, so one is um, the idea that power is not a substance, but that it exists only in its exercise. So that then changes, you know, how we talk about power and how we, um, how we study it and, you know, think about, um, how it's always a function of certain social relations rather than a kind of uh, fixed substance that someone could hold on to um, or dispose of. Um, and then there was the idea that we should study power um, as it flows throughout an entire social body rather than just focusing as political theory had done traditionally on the exercise of power by the state. So Foucault famously said, um, when it comes to the study of power, we still have not yet cut off the head of the king, um, by which he meant, you know, there's still so much of a focus on sovereignty and the power of the state in discussions about power that we miss the ways that power flows throughout the extremities, as he says, of the social body. And that, incidentally, is, is, a, is an idea that I always thought... Um, connected in a really interesting way with the feminist emphasis on the personal as the political. So the way that, you know, power kind of flows through mundane everyday social interactions that, you know, this changes how we talk about what power is and how it um, operates in a way that opens up a whole other um, vistas of power analysis. Um, another methodological insight of Foucault's was um, that and it's related to the point about power flowing through a social, like the, what he calls the capillaries or the extremities of the social body. So through all, you know, mundane social interactions is the idea that if we want to talk about broad systemic structures of power or oppression, um, that we should, we should study power from the bottom up rather than the top down. So he said, you know, and here I think he had in mind primarily Marxist analyses of power that, you know, it's too simple to say, oh, um, you know, the basic structure of power in the society is that uh, the proletariat is oppressed by the capitalists, because then you can go out and like every interaction you look at, you can explain in terms of that basic structure. And it's not necessarily that that's 
wrong so much as it's too easy, basically. So Foucault said we need to conduct an ascending rather than a descending analysis of power. So we need to look at how power is functioning um, at the extremities, you know, in these um, uh, mundane everyday social interactions. And then we could try to build up from there some sort of an account of systemic uh, structures of power relations. Um, and then I guess the last point I would emphasize in terms of method is Foucault's great insight about how power is related to the formation of subjects. So he had this, uh, this uh, famous use of the term subjection, which he always intended in a kind of, as you would say, two-sided way. So subjection um, is meant to describe how individuals are both subjected to relations of power and at the same time constituted as subjects with the capacity to act through that subjection. So, um, so subjection is both a, a kind of way of being um, subordinated to power, but at the same time empowered through that very act of, uh, of subordination. Um, and so you end up with this very complicated account of how power relations not only flow throughout the whole of the social body, but also in a way um, work their way into the constitution of selves. And this, I think, is, has also been very influential for feminist theory because it's um, really helped illuminate some of the deep-seatedness of um, structures of gender domination, how they get kind of rooted in the constitution of gendered selves. And then this is one of the things that makes them so intractable and so difficult to change because changing the relations of power also means changing the subjects who reenact them and um, who are constituted through them. So I would say, I mean, there's lots more to say about Foucault's understanding of power, the different um, modalities, how he understands modern power as distinctive from earlier forms, um, you know, et cetera. But I think for me, the most interesting and productive things are the methodological insights. And I guess I should say one more thing about that, which is, which is the point about productivity, which is of course so important for Foucault as well, that he quite famously argued that power is not simply or solely repressive, but also productive. And that goes hand in hand with the idea about the, um, the constitution of subjects, because the subject is one of the main effects of power for Foucault. It's one of the main things that power produces. Um, and I think sometimes people have a tendency to slightly over-interpret what Foucault says about repression and think that he, he somehow is saying that power does not function repressively or negatively, that's clearly, I think, not what he's saying. He's just saying that always at the same time, it's, it's producing objects and we have to um, be attentive to both its productive and negative or repressive effects if we want to really understand how power is operating. I, I really appreciate that, the breadth and, and depth of that understanding. Uh, and I, I want to dig in, especially, I think, here to that the individual individualization piece in some ways that both Foucault and I think feminism speak to the, that power in, in, in everyday interactions. Um, you know, we're, the audience of this podcast being people that are interested in social change are often thinking about big picture things. If you're interested in 
and and uh, Marxist theory, as you mentioned, you're often thinking these top-down things. If you're thinking about, you know, we've seen it recently with Trump and and other things where you're thinking about aiming at at these big targets or so of oppression. Um, can you speak a little bit about how, uh, as a social change agent, this additional complexity might be uh, integrated into some of those thoughts that we might have in terms of how to create a more just, obviously the feminists have been doing this for a long time, but how, how they might, uh, how that, that individual and personal approach might change how we think about power here. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if this will uh, directly speak to the last part of your question, but I mean, one of the things I was really interested in, in my um, first book, and it's, and I think this is where we have to somewhat go beyond Foucault if we want to kind of develop a view of power that um, fully speaks to your question. Um, but was in trying to think about um, a model of um, political solidarity and the role that that plays in um, and, and collective social movements and the role that those play in transforming relationships of, of power. Um, both at the individual and the social level. And I said, I think we have to go beyond Foucault for that because, you know, it's just not a topic that Foucault was like terribly interested in. I think if you're, you know, it's not that he doesn't ever have anything to say about collective social movements. Um, and there is, I mean, for example, there, you know, he has a whole um, complicated discussion of, uh, of the Iranian revolution that one, you know, could look at in light of an account of, um, of collective transformation, but, um, but it's not a primary theme of his work on power at all. And, um, and so in my, um, dissertation, I looked at the work of Hannah Arendt, who I think is, um, also a brilliant theorist of power, one who account shares some interesting commonalities with, with Foucault's understanding of power. For example, that power only exists in its exercise, um, and um, Arendt has other, you know, let's say various, I'd call them broadly post-metaphysical commitments to understanding power that, that would connect her to Foucault as well. But in other ways, her account was totally different. I mean, she was interested in connecting power um, to legitimacy and to collective political action. That's her primary understanding of power. And so, um, so what I tried to develop in my early work was a, a kind of Foucauldian, feminist Foucauldian understanding of power that also has, let's say, an Arendtian component that enables us to think about the role that social movements play in, um, in transforming um, the social world, but also in serving as a resource for individuals who are trying to renegotiate their own relationship to power, let's say. So I think um, Arendt was more interested, let's say, in the, in the role of collective social movements in the generation of and legitimization and exercise of power. And um, of course, you know, there's a lot one could say about, about how social movements operate to produce um, social transformation at that level. But I also was interested in thinking about how those social movements themselves can also provide resources for individuals who are trying to engage in like everyday acts of resistance. So social movements provide alternate sources of 
recognition um, for social movement actors or for act- social actors. They provide new conceptual frameworks, new normative frameworks, you know, things that individuals can then take back to their daily lives to renegotiate how they are relating um, to power, both in their relationships and in their, well, both in their relationships to others and in their relationships to themselves. But I don't know, does that get at your question? I feel like maybe I changed the subject a little bit. No, no, I think that that's, uh, that was a very helpful illumination of the, the, the different scales on which we're operating in these kind of conversations here. Well, um, Dr. Allen, in the beginning, you were talking about this conceptualization of power as either uh, domination or oppression as very simple. And this is also the basis of your influential paper that was published back in 96, Rethinking Power. Uh, I was wondering, what made you want to think beyond this um, one-sided view of feminist accounts of power? Why did you think that it was important to move um, beyond that? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that analysis was, was pretty rooted in some of the feminist debates at the time, let's say, between um, between radical feminists like um, like Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, who who really wanted to emphasize a conception of, um, and, and there probably are rhetorical reasons for this too, but some are also conceptual, you know, an, an understanding of oppression that was quite stark according to which, yeah, as according to which men are powerful and women are powerless effectively. I mean, there's lots of, I think problems with that. One is, um, it kind of obscures the ways that even, um, even women who would fit neatly into that equation have maintain a sense of agency often in their own experience of being relatively powerless. So, so that's part of the problem, but also of course, McKinnon's that kind of radical feminist perspective was really criticized for not um, being sensitive enough to questions of intersectionality and the ways that like not all women are positioned similarly relative to um to power and to say that all women are powerless is to implicitly deny the way that, for example, white women have lots of power relative to women of color because of their position within a racial hierarchy. So, um, so, you know, so that was, that was a really kind of, at the time I was starting to work on power, still a really prominent discourse and debate. You know, I'd say radical feminism was, was, not just theoretically, but also politically a very influential force. Um, and, um, and in response, there were a lot of feminists who wanted to say, you know, um, not just that this is an overly simplistic understanding of power, but that it's actually to think about power in terms of coercion, um, is itself a kind of masculine understanding of power. So you had a kind of reverse movement that was to say, you know, if we really want to understand power in a feminist sense, that means we should be thinking about empowerment, either individual or mutual empowerment. Um, And I think that's in some ways a helpful corrective to the radical feminist view, because it is important to think about empowerment. Although I was never very comfortable with the idea that somehow um, power in the sense of coercion is masculine. I mean, I think both that, yeah, I think this too, um, 
I'm not comfortable with the kind of gender coding of some of these uh, categories, let's just say. Um, so, so I don't really know, honestly, how well that kind of dynamic would map on, does, does or doesn't map on to contemporary debates about gender. I mean, I think it was um, a diagnosis that was pretty rooted in a kind of um, debate that was uh, prominent at the time and in which it seemed to me that, you know, people were just kind of talking past each other, like calling one thing power or another thing without sort of thinking about how these two um, phenomena actually we have to really understand them in relationship to one another and that that calls for a broader understanding of power. Hmm. Well, you know, I think you've gotten to the root of the question which we're seeking to ask over these episodes, which is this concept that we all know that power matters in this, but we don't really know how to talk about it across these some of these boundaries. And I think, you know, th this idea that that women can both be have agency and be the subjects of power, and you know, I think if we go back to Foucault, you know, the the idea of being in jail and and also being the jailer, I think, uh, is a, is a part of. If I'm understanding his work correctly, there's some of that element in there as well. But I'm I'm wondering, kind of, can you speak to this kind of uh, tendency that can happen in Foucault? Foucauldian thought to think that we're all just made up of these power relations and that there's an absence of agency. And I know you've written pushing back on that a little bit, but perhaps questioning what we mean by agency in, in that same moment. So can you speak a little bit about that dynamic between agency, which I think some times we might think of as empowerment or, or, or otherwise, and how that kind of relates to power here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always... So I talked earlier about Foucault's understanding of subjection that, you know, that that means that we're both um, subjected to power and constituted as subjects kind of in one and the same uh, relationship, let's say, um, one and the same uh, uh, system of power. Um, and I think, you know, people often... Re it, I mean, this is less true now, but let's say in the kind of initial wave of reception of Foucault's work that was um, in the 80s and 90s, um, there was a tendency to kind of read Foucault and think, oh, it's all about being um, subjected to power and there's no room left then for actual agency. Um, and you know, I think Foucault was quite serious in the two-sidedness of this, you know, that, um, it's true that, that we're formed as subjects by being subjected to power, but we're also formed as subjects through that process. And so when Foucault in his late work starts, you know, getting really interested in what he calls practices or technologies of the self, um, as kind of modes of remaking this, making and reconstituting the self, um, you know, I think there were a lot of, a lot of readers who were like, wait a minute, I didn't, you know, this is a complete, uh, contradiction and, you know, and about face and so on. And I never understood it that way because I always took really seriously the kind of two-sidedness of uh, subjection for Foucault. Now, if you say, you know, you're constituted as a subject, um, through being subjected to power, well, that's our, that is a different, 
you might say more constrained understanding of agency. Um, and I think that's right. Um, and Foucault intended it to be that way. I mean, he's, you know, one of his big kind of philosophical targets, I mean, he had a number of them. I think he was often trying to distinguish himself from a certain version of Marxism. Um, and obviously from uh, a certain reading of Freud and Freudianism and, you know, various things. But he, one of his big philosophical opponents was always existentialism. And so he was, you know, by, by emphasizing the way that the subject is um, produced through, constituted through relations of power, I think he was trying to offer an alternative to the kind of transcendental phenomenological subject that had all of these powers and capacities for constituting its own experience. So in a way, I, you know, think he's offering a little, a bit of an inversion of that model. So it is a more constrained, um, you might say, understanding of, of agency. But I mean, I think that's, you know, it, it always struck me as more realistic. I mean, as people, if Foucault's not interest, was not really interested in like, you know, parenting or childhood or anything like that. But I mean, as people, we are, you know, constituted as subjects through a set of familial relations that are, um, not, not only not reducible to power relations, but they're also power relations. I mean, children are completely powerless relative to their parents, at the beginning of their lives. And, and that, you know, over time gives way, um, I think in the ideal case to uh, a child's attainment of autonomy, that's a long process and complicated and fraught one. And, um, and so when you're thinking about any person, any social agent who has agency, it's always been formed in relationship to others and in and through a situation of dependency on others and thus of relative powerlessness. So I think this somewhat more constrained understanding of agency is, um, is just a more realistic one actually. And then the last thing I would say is that, um, I think it's important to make a distinction between empowerment and resistance. So there are ways of being empowered, um, in the sense of having a capacity to act or kind of agency within a situation that may not themselves be, um, you know, that may themselves be furthering, um, structures of domination. I mean, so this is a, a topic that comes up a lot in feminist theory where you, you know, um, think about the kind of complicated relationship between choice, freedom of choice, and like, you know, wanting to emphasize, for example, women's freedom, uh, empowerment in the sense of ability to choose for themselves. And that sometimes, you know, you give women that choice and they make choices that seem <laughs> to be furthering relations of oppression rather than contesting them. Um, and so the way that I think about that is that, you know, is that empowerment or agency is one thing and, you know, directing that agency, um, in the service of contesting relations of oppression and domination is another, and we can't, you know, we have to understand, um, that 
those two things don't always go hand in hand. So empowerment's a good goal, but it's not, um, I don't think it's the whole of the story when we're thinking about social transformation from a feminist perspective. I'm going to go back to something that you said towards the beginning of our, excuse me, conversation about power to, power over, and power with, and this conversation about empowerment and agency just made me think of, of that. Could you elaborate on what you meant by power with and how it is perceived uh, in today's society? Mm-hmm. So power with is is kind of broadly speaking, the ability or capacity to act in concert with others. Um, so it's a specific modality of power that emerges and um, uh, through collective social movements or collective political action. Um, and so <clears throat> I think again, there, there's a distinction that could be made between power with more broadly and what I call solidarity movements. So, a, so a solidarity movement is one that's, that aims to, um, to either overturn or redress or ameliorate a structure of oppression. Um, and, um, a collective political movement, you know, could have any kind of aim in view. So here, here's the place where I kind of disagree with Hannah Arendt. So Arendt thought, you know, power was always tied to legitimacy. So there was not really much room in her <clears throat> thinking for, um, for understanding collective political concerted political action that was aimed at oppressing other people. But I do think that's a possibility we have to understand. So like, I don't know, you know, authoritarian populism is a collective political movement. I mean, it's one that I don't, I think is aimed at, you know, at reinforcing, uh, well, it's aimed at a lot of things, but you know, one of its aims at least is reinforcing white supremacy in the face of a kind of, um, erosion of it in some ways, uh, or threat to certain forms of white supremacy. So, um, so it's not, it doesn't aim at, you know, solidarity in the, in the normative sense that I understand that term. Um, but it does, you know, it is a kind of instance of, uh, a, of a social movement that's been successful in many ways, not, you know, some of which having to do with complicated features of institutional design and all sorts of things. But, you know, um, but there, I, I think it's, would be naive to suggest that there's no actual like grassroots popular support that that movement is based on. It definitely is in the United States. Um, even though there are also some structural advantages that it's able to exploit in our political system. So, um, so again, I would want to make, I, I want to make a distinction between like, power with is this kind of broad phenomenon that, you know, that, um, that plays an important role, obviously in social transformation and, um, more specific solidarity movements that are aimed at overturning or combating, uh, oppression. Um, I think that answered your question, but maybe there's more to it. <laughs> but, um, your one of your more recent books, you've talked about kind of decolonizing the idea of critical theory, and you know we're now seeing a, across the spectrum a, a broader understanding of intersectionality and how that plays into these kind of conversations. Can you speak a little bit about how you see uh, our burgeoning understanding of decolonizing of some of these fields, as well as intersectionality, may play into a a, a more 
uh, nuanced and, and complex understanding of power moving forward. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, well, obviously those are both really important questions and very complicated ones. I mean, I had, um, as I said earlier, part of the motivation for my trying to think about power more broadly, not just as, uh, domination or empowerment, but, you know, or either individual or collective empowerment was to try to, um, was actually motivated by a kind of intersectional perspective that, you know, if you, uh, want to single out, um, only one strand of power, I think that becomes really difficult because you're tend to be then privileging one kind of experience of power. Um, so, um, and I think, some, well, so I'll come back to intersectionality maybe in a minute, but, um, in terms of the decolonizing issue, um, I mean, I, I think I got interested in that topic partly because, um, I noticed that in a lot of the, um, that there was a real disconnect between this, the kind of strand of critical theory that I was interested in, namely the kind of critical theory of the Frankfurt School and the broader commitments of, let's say, uh, you know, critical theories, you know, gender studies, um, cultural studies, um, and so on, which had really taken a post-colonial perspective much more on board. And so, um, so... I think part of the aim of my uh, work on that was to try to open up a conversation more between um, people who were interested in the Frankfurt School tradition of critical theory and these broader kind of critical perspectives, which I think had not had much to say to each other. And it's, it struck me that part of the reason for that was that um, critical theorists in the Frankfurt School tradition were still very invested in the story about... Um, about progress and in thinking about, um, you know, the achievements of European modernity and enlightenment as instances of historical progress. And that that was exactly the kind of idea that had, um, that had been revealed by work in post-colonial and decolonial theory to be so politically pernicious. And so there was this real like gulf between these two conversations. And so, um, so for me, I mean, I don't even know. I, I think, I think probably my use of the term decolonizing in that, um, project was maybe not the most sophisticated. Um, but for me, it was, a, it was about trying to rethink this, um, pernicious commitment to understanding modernity in terms of progress as a way of then opening up a much broader conversation that would, um, that would both allow critical theory in the Frankfurt school tradition to be more relevant, I think, by engaging with these, um, with these broader critical literatures, but also, um, force it to be more critical, self-critical of its own assumptions and investments and, um, in understandings of power or of progress and modernity that I think are actually, um, bound up with problematic relationships of power. So, um, so that was the, that was for me, the impulse, um, to kind of engage in the work of decolonization. Um, I mean, I think there's lots of ways to under, 
understand that. And there's definitely been criticisms of, you know, these more metaphorical understandings of decolonization and, um, or, you know, thinking about decolonization solely in epistemic or conceptual terms as opposed to material ones and so on. And I, I think my use of the term decolonization is probably uh, open to some of those concerns for sure. Um, but that was the, that was the idea. Um, and in terms of intersectionality, I, it's actually interesting that you asked that question because it's one of the things I'm, I'm sort of thinking about now. I've been invited to give a talk at a conference at Harvard coming up this fall that's celebrating the 100th birthday of the uh, Frankfurt School um, because the Institute for Social Research was founded in Frankfurt in 1923. So this is its 100th birthday. Um, and... Um, and we were asked specifically to reflect on um, basically where where we think critical theory, you know, where it's been, but also where it needs to go in the next hundred years in order to um, to stay uh, to stay relevant and to to fulfill its mission of offering a critical theory of society, modern society. Um, and so the paper that I have uh, a, that I pitched, although I haven't written it yet, is, um, was focused, is going to focus on intersectionality and, and to try to say that, you know, um, I think that in order to offer the kind of, uh, diagnostic account, um, of modern society that the Frankfurt school needs to offer, um, it has to develop a more intersectional understanding of power. So there's, you know, from the beginning, the Frankfurt School really was very focused on capitalism and we'd say capitalism and then, um, and then anti-Semitism. Um, and so, but you don't get, you know, a broad understanding of, of gender, not just, um, in terms of feminist issues, but thinking more broadly about gender, sexuality, et cetera. Um, and the account of racism, although there is an account of anti-Semitism that might have some interesting, you know, does have some interesting things to say about race. It's not, you know, going to give you the full account of racism that I think critical theory would need in order to actually um, be genuinely critical. And um, in all of this, because of the Marxist kind of background of critical theory, I think ca capitalism tends to be like the master concept. And so the challenge really becomes how to think about um, the critique of capitalism in a, in a genuinely intersectional way, which I think is quite difficult to do actually. Um, especially if you're starting from Marx. Um, so, so that's actually something I'm thinking about right now that I don't have, um, I don't have completed thoughts about it yet. Well, we've spent some time today talking about um, the one-sided view of uh, power as oppression and dominance and the need to move beyond it. Um, I was wondering 15, 20 later from when you first uh, talked about it, wrote about it, um, do you see a lot more progress in that area or are we like, as a society still at, stuck at that one-sided view of uh, feminist accounts of power and what can social change practitioners learn from that and uh, in a way that they can embed their work ethos in that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's probably, to me, it seems like there's a disconnect between, um, the, you know, the conversations in academic, uh, feminism and, you know, sort of the way that feminist theory is taken up more broadly. Um, so, so I think within academic feminism, I think there's been, you know, a lot of, um, interesting and, um, complicated and nuanced and subtle, you know, discussions of power, um, how power operates that I think don't fall into this, um, this kind of one-sided conception. I mean, and relatedly probably, uh, the, the influence of radical feminism has really declined. I mean, it's not that no one, I mean, there are still some, um, some feminists, particularly working in more analytic philosophy of, um, language actually, who are still really interested in, um, in radical feminism and particularly in the idea like that, you know, pornography objectifies women and how to like understand what that might mean. Um, but I would say it's, it's definitely the case that radical feminism doesn't have as much of a kind of broad influence as it once did. And so that means that, and, and, and Foucault's, I mean, you know, when I started working on the concept of power, like you still had to, you still had to make an argument for why Foucault's work was relevant, like, and important and feminists should take it seriously. And that just like, that just seems absurd now. Like I think people, you know, it's like he's, his work has become so um, ubiquitous that, you know, it would seem, it seems strange that there was ever a, a moment when you had to like defend why, <laughs> why Foucault was important for, for feminist theories of power. So I think that's, I mean, I'm always, I'm, I would be hesitant to call it progress. I think it's changed. I think the conversation's really changed and, uh, and, and the work of Foucault and also people like Judith Butler has really become so influential in, um, in gender studies that the conceptualization of power is different and a lot more complicated than it was, um, at, you know, at the time when I started working on this topic. I mean, in terms of the broader culture though, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that I would say that there's been progress. I mean, there's been a shift, you know, I think, I think let's say, um, in the seventies, you know, at the sort of height of the second wave uh, feminist movement, um, there was a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, women as being oppressed and, um, and on oppression and, you know, how we think about that and so on. And, and the kind of critique that emerged even in the broader culture was like, oh, you know, feminism is all about victimization. It's about portraying women as victims. And, you know, this is overly simplistic and, um, and, and wrong and, um, and disempower, you know, and actually kind of paradoxical or whatever, self-undermining because it, it has the effect of, disempowering women when the point is supposed to be about empowering them. I mean, I think, you know, as with, as with a lot of maybe all of these kinds of the ways these conversations get taken up in the broader, um, culture, it's it's a little simplistic. I mean, there's a lot more to second wave feminism and accounts of oppression. They're a lot more interesting than that, like rough account would make you think. Um, but there's also maybe like a little grain of truth to it, you know, that there was such a focus on oppression and, domination and how these function and like all these complex and 
um, <clears throat> multifarious ways that, you know, that it was easy to lose sight of, um, of, uh, empowerment and agency. At least we didn't have as robust an account of that necessarily now, but, but in the kind of broader culture, there's then this shift like, Oh, so feminism's it, you know, it, it shouldn't be about victimization. It's just about empowerment. And so then you get like girl boss feminism and lean in feminism and like these other kind of popular, um, ways of thinking about what feminism is, you know, that, um, celebrate empowerment, but that also ultimately don't make any real sense. Right. <laughs> like we're, because then it's like, well, fem, you know, like any sort of choice I might make, whatever it might be, like comes to seem like it's feminism or, um, uh, you know, I mean, to, to think about the sort of common, um, criticism of, of, uh, Sheryl Sandberg's, you know, work lean in, kind of model, like it's, you know, feminism becomes about like individual achievement as opposed to like collective self-transformation. And, and it also becomes about like buying into, you know, uh, a kind of neoliberal corporate, um, culture, right. Um, which, which I think feminists should be in the business of criticizing, not glorifying. So, um, so I think, now, again, the landscape is starting to shift again now. And, you know, certainly in relationship to the Dobbs decision, I think you're starting to see a change in the way that, um, well, I guess go back further than that and, and, and think about, um, me too. Um, and then, and then responses to the Dobbs decision that there's some more current shifts, I think, happening in the way that feminism is playing out in the kind of broader cultural landscape. Um, but, um, I don't know, uh, yeah, you know, where that's heading. I don't know. And the other thing I would say is, you know, I think, um, this is probably a, 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 a very big claim to make, like when we've got about five minutes left, but, you know, I, I think social media has just had like a hugely distorting effect on, you know, on all of this conversation. Um, because, um, yeah, there's been a real, there, there's maybe too much of a tendency to assume that like, you know, posting and liking and things going viral actually has the same kind of transformational effects as actual collective social and political action. And, um, I think what we're seeing is actually a real disconnect between, um, the way that feminism like has gone viral and is like, you know, for certain segments of even young women now, like, um, not just acceptable, but like cool. And at the same time, you know, we're living in a world where, um, reproductive rights are being completely eroded and, um, and transgender, um, people are under assault and, you know, like, so, to me, that says something about, you know, the importance of really thinking about the role of collective social movements in lasting social transformation. And social media, I think, enables, well, it's not totally unrelated to those, but it's not the same. Well, I love that. And, uh, you know, I think you've painted this picture of the need for intersectionality in these conversations and the need also for 
um, both looking at powers of domination, but also looking internally at our individual uh, embeddedness in these power structures. Can you, uh, you know, for our listeners that are interested in learning more about this, we'll obviously link to some of your work uh, in the description here. But are there other resources that you would point folks to that are trying to figure out uh, how to go about propagating change while balancing these these uh, understandings of how power uh, works in their own lives and in, in, in our society more generally? Well, there's, there's a couple of fairly recent books that I've really found very uh, productive and helpful for my own thinking. Um, so one of them is a, a fairly recent book by Patricia Hill Collins um, called uh, Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory. Um, that is, um, really wonderful, um, kind of articulation and conceptualization of intersectionality that also relates it to, um, to some classical work in critical social theory and tries to kind of systematize intersectionality theory as a critical social theory. Um, and, um, it's a really, I think, um, excellent kind of distillation of a lot of Hill Collins's views over the course of her career. So it's also a kind of, uh, and, and her work on power, um, on intersectionality, but also on, um, on, uh, black women's empowerment was really, um, influential for me, even in writing my dissertation. So I think that's, that's a great book. And it's also very, um, attuned to, um, I think questions about social change and social movements. Um, I think partly because of Hill Collins's disciplinary formation as a sociologist. Um, and another recent book that I have really found very helpful again, it's kind of taking a broad view at some debates, um, about power and oppression is, um, a book called Marxism and Intersectionality by Ashley Borer, B-O-H-R-E-R. Um, and um, so that's a, that's a book that's really trying to tackle the question of how. <laughs> so it's like, if you talk about intersectionality, people always say, oh, right. So intersectionality means we need to think about um, gender, race, and class in some kind of interlocking or intersectional or interconnected way. Um, but one of the challenges is like, there's always been a little bit more difficulty to, um, to really incorporate class into that type of framework. Um, because, um, the kind of standard critique of class oppression comes out of Marx and, and Marxists tend to be, um, a much more, how do I want to say it? Um, mono causal in their framework. Right. Um, so, so Borer sort of starts with this idea that like, you know, there's been this kind of debate between Marxists and intersectionality theorists and Marxists tend to say, well, we don't really need intersectionality because like Marxism can give you an analysis of race and gender and class and everything that you want, but it's all, you know, in terms of the kind of, um, structural analysis of, um, political economy. I mean, I'm simplifying of course, but anyway, this is the sort of basic dynamic. And then, um, and then 
on the other side, the intersectionality theorists, according to Borer, have, have really, you know, have not always given full enough attention to how to bring class into their analysis. So there's been a little bit more of a focus on more identity, what we would call, you know, identity politics, um, race and gender and sexuality. And so the challenge then becomes like how to really think about these things in an integrated way. Um, and I think it's a really, you know, excellent kind of setting out mapping of this terrain and then kind of, you know, throwing down of a gauntlet. Like this is really the challenge. How do we think about, um, how, how do we bring together a kind of Marxist analysis with, um, a paradigm of intersectionality that comes out of black feminism and women of color feminism into a, into a comprehensive, uh, critical framework. So those are two fairly recent books that I, um, that I have really found quite helpful and provocative. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen, for joining us today. You've added a lot to our earning, uh, learning. Um, is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much again for inviting me. Thank you. What a great conversation indeed. Brad, what did you think? I think you, you said it well. It's, it was a great conversation. I think very theoretically rich and a lot of stuff I'll be unpacking for a while to come here. I really appreciated the way she was able to articulate and, and put Foucault yeah. and, and, and feminism in conversation. And I think uh, demonstrate the way that power interacts across all of this and, and raises some really interesting questions about how it's meaningful to us as social change practitioners. But mm -hmm. what, uh, where, where do you think we're going here? Well, like you said, it was really helpful in understanding uh, the feminist side of things, uh, for sure. Um, before I really get into it, I wanted to understand from you, because when we began, you said that um, you believe that you're a feminist, and I believe you too. <laughs> How did that, um, did that, did your understanding when, when we went into the episode, um, into the conversation with Dr. Allen, did that change in any way? Or did you come out of it learning something new? Or yeah, I think it's uh, uh, always it's becoming more and more nuanced uh, over time. And I think I look at it, the biggest takeaway for me and the feminist component here is really this idea that, you know, there's a there's a part of feminism that looks at these unjust power structures that are out there, the patriarchy, right, and and wanting to disrupt those and, and understand those in order to, to change them. But I think that what we kind of saw here and what I really am interested in is this way this Foucauldian, the Foucault's approach to kind of power being pervasive everywhere, how it has ramifications. And I think uh, Dr. Allen did a really interesting job of kind of uh, encouraging us to think about power, not just in that domination sense that I think feminism often takes, but to look at it. Uh, in our own lives, in our own marriages, in, in our own relationships, and on our own actions, and see how is there power and potentially masculine uh, um, uh, patriarchal power that we're not even thinking of because it doesn't abide in in these systems uh, that we think of, but also. How are there these incredible feminists? Or, or I think she's a little uncomfortable with defining so, so things like solidarity as a specifically feminist mm -hmm. kind of power, but those things that are more 
closely associated with feminism like solidarity to kind of give them a a bigger sense that they're more powerful than we often give them credit right. for. But right, I might be paraphrasing here, but uh, I believe what she talked about is gender coding of power and how uncomfortable that made her. And I deeply appreciated um, the way she. Um, I mean, the words that she used to kind of bring all of that together. And piggybacking off of what you said about bringing together Foucault's understanding and kind of feminism, um, I, I believe I read somewhere that he wasn't really considered as a feminist, but at the same time, um, it's interesting how some of the things that he said about power uh, being bottom up and the way he studied was mainly bottom up rather than top down. So those kind of, that kind of an approach and also his um, understanding of that, how power can be productive. It doesn't always have to be repressive. So you can see clear lines of how that um, might have influenced the feminist accounts of power. So that very, very interesting for some someone like Foucault, you know, his understanding of power to be translated in that way into feminist philosophy is, is really amazing. Yeah, I think just this idea that there is power in, in, in everything we do. You know, I think there's a um, there's an article that I think you and I have talked about that I read for a qualitative research methods class, which you, most of our listeners will probably find to be the most boring thing imaginable. But this article was fascinating in that it looked at a couple different interviews that took place and how power was enacted in those interviews. And I think when you take a moment and kind of look at any interaction, I mean, even you and I sitting in this recording studio, there's power being enacted in, in so many different ways and both things that we can recognize now, but also societal forces that, that are dictating so, so much of this, the, you know, the power that say suggests that a podcast is a useful communication tool. The, 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 the power that comes from uh, my having a deeper voice, you know, the, the, in that, and that the social construction and where that comes from is, is really, I, I think the, the Foucault approach really encourages us to think in all of those levels and not just, uh, you know, I think, I, I think we touched on it in this, in the podcast, but that all of us are both subject to and actors that are subjecting others to power at, at any given time is really an important way, I think, to think about the world, not just of us as subjects, but us as subjecting others as well to our power. Right, right. Very well said, Brad. Uh, in terms of thinking of our social change practitioners and our other listeners, what are some of the chief takeaways that should that stayed with you and you think that should stay with them as well? Um, you know, I think this this Foucaultian understanding that you need to think beyond just power being a negative thing, that mm -hmm. power has is neutral in and of itself and that it can be engaged to, to help in many different ways, both uh, uh, helpfully, I, you know, at the end of last episode, I suggested that there's a invisible power uh, that kind of pervades uh, and, and perhaps holds society together that I would argue is a positive thing. Uh, but I think that the, the big thing that I think the reason that I appreciate these feminist and Foucault approaches together is this idea, because I think Foucault can often seem like there's this common saying about Foucault, that power is everywhere, power is nowhere. So that what, what do you do about that? It leaves you in this space of there's nothing I can do. And I really appreciate Dr. Allen kind of suggesting 
that's not really a full approach that yes power is everywhere power is nowhere but that there are places and structures where power and injustices of power can be identified and can be attacked and so that this kind of place where we both need to be looking at understanding power in our own lives and and how it manifests in us while also balancing that with looking at who's perpetrating power over others in our in our in our world who is the patriarchy and how can we act against that as well as looking at you know what are the things in my power and in my social circle so i just i appreciate that that call for interior looking internally as well as looking externally when we're thinking about power and not getting stuck in either one of those spaces. But any chief takeaways for you, Yugasha? Well, I think that I was really able to join the dots in terms of some of the things that we've been talking about through the beginning of um, this power arc, um, talking about social movements, um, like a display of you know power as resistance. Then um, moving on to talking about uh, invisible forms of power, um, moving to talk about how power structures are really interwoven. So it's more about coalitions. It's more about networks of power. And I think it kind of all was brought together by this understanding of feminist philosophy, at least for me. And one of the examples that really stood out to me and I think really brings into picture all of these four four different things is um, the way she mentioned about girl boss feminism and the way that trend has really taken over um, social media right now and how it's become more about individual struggle rather than kind of, um, you know, it's more about your individual, ex- not only, I, I wouldn't call it expression, but talking about your personal struggles versus about the whole society or again i'm going to choose not to um use the word solidarity but then again i don't know how to like really um bring out um the way that i'm trying to express it but um and to understand the damaging effect of or the impact that these kind of trends can have on the larger movement of feminism is something that we all need to sit down and think about I, I completely agree. I think that's really well stated, Yugasha. And I think, you know, her comments about intersectionality and you know, how feminism was not what it needed to be for many years. And now that it's being kind of pushed into the intersection to understand its intersectionality, mm-hmm. that it, uh, it, it hopefully creates a state of potential further growth. And that I, I think, you know, kind of what I'm taking away from this whole series at this point is that the, we need to understand these structures and how power flows in order to change how power flows. And so this is just, a, I think, a deeper understanding that there there are these structures, but also it flows invisibly, as Dr. Lukes would say, and, and here in, in minute in, in, in ways and in such that we are we are all subject to it in ways that we can't even put our finger on. And the more that we can kind of learn about that and identify those things, the better we can approach them moving forward. Right, right, and that's that's exactly where we're headed. Uh, like you said, we've gained quite a good understanding of different conceptualizations, and it's um, also good to take a moment and think about what it looks like in practice. Um, how, how do we really, really deal with it? Um, And that's exactly what we'll be getting into on our next um, um, episode. So thanks again, Brad. Thank you, Yugasha. Thank you.